0: Well, it's good to see you guys here today, whether you're here in Maryville or in Knoxville, we're glad that you guys are connecting. How many of you that are married uh, went through premarital counseling? Anybody? Lots of us, lots of us. I remember the one thing that our counselor told us in that process was that sex happens in the morning. And I thought, I'm here for that all day. (laughs) Set the alarm, here we go. Um, But what he meant was that it starts by how you wake up and treat each other all day long. And so that was kind of disappointing and it's still something I'm still trying to learn. But uh, one thing about men and women is that that's just one example of how we are very, very different. We are built differently. And so we want to start a series today called Built Different. And my goal is to help you understand what God's design is for gender and for marriage. And I wanna give you some theology today to kind of build a framework. And then over the next few weeks, we're gonna talk really practically about the differences in the roles of men and women. If you have a Bible, go to Genesis chapter two, and then as well, turn to Ephesians 5. You have to forgive my voice today. Uh, Woke up yesterday not feeling great and so still kind of dealing with that. So uh, thank you for your patience. But uh, this isn't a political series. So uh, this isn't about politics. It's not driven by politics. It's really driven by the need for God's people to have a biblical understanding and I know that there are probably a lot of you that would say, "Yes, I know the difference between men and women and marriages for men and women and all the stuff that's happening in our culture. I'm against all this you know uh, the, the the gay movement and you know changing your gender and all this stuff, but I, I don't want us just to believe something. I want us to be anchored in the truth of God's word as to why we believe it. and so all the belief systems that we have as Christians are all anchored to the Word of God, and so I want you, my hope for you and for all the young people, uh, especially who are being manipulated by a culture consistently at school and, and on social media and your friends and elsewhere, that we would, we would really be anchored in the word of God, knowing what God's word actually says. And some of you might say, Trent, why does it even matter? Why can't we just let people marry who they want to marry, have sex with whoever they want to have sex with, change their genders if they want to? And I would say, It's not about letting people do anything. We're not letting anybody do anything. Uh, We don't have that power. They're gonna do what they wanna do, but it's about proclaiming the truth of God's word. We do that because we care about the soul of mankind. We care about their eternity. We care about the truth of the word of God. And so there's a responsibility that, that we have as Christians that we are to share. Now we can't change anybody. You can't change somebody's spirit or heart or what they want to do. That's completely the work of God in their life. But it is our responsibility to share the truth that we know uh, from the word of God. And imagine it like this. If you're babysitting uh, your neighbor's toddler and, and uh, they leave you alone with the toddler and you let that toddler run out into a busy highway and, and play. It's not going to be long before the toddler gets injured or hurt really, really bad. And, and the injury is going to be because of your negligence your lack of responsibility to care for that child. And in the same way as Christians, we're responsible to the truth of God's word. It's our duty to share this truth. And if we neglect that responsibility and just say, well, you guys do whatever you want to do, and we just hide it to ourselves, essentially we are not being faithful. We're not being good stewards of the, the, the truth that God has shared with us and, and that that we know to be true. And so the good news about scripture when it comes to or relates to sexuality is you don't have to really dig in the word of God to find it. It's on page one, <laughs> page one, page two, boom, you got it, right? And so we don't have to look far to realize that men and women are built differently. We are built with a purpose. In other words, God designed us differently. And he has a reason for that. And he was intentional about it. And when we live in and through that purpose as a man, as a woman, then you're able to flourish in the relationships that you have around you. And you're actually able to benefit the world and the family that God gives to you. Let me start in Genesis 1, then we'll go to 2, but I just want to read a couple of verses here to set the tone. It says, So God created man in his own image, right? In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we get... A lot of groundwork here. First of all, God creates man and woman in his own image. And so that means they are equal in dignity, equal in worth and in value, but they are still distinct. They are different, created in his own image. And he created them to be fruitful. So to multiply, to have babies, right? To have a family, to raise a family together and have dominion over the earth and subdue it. So that means he wants us to cultivate the earth, to create culture, to to build culture, and to rule over the earth as good stewards of the resources that he's given to us. And so we learn that the human race is created with two genders. God creates male and female. So basic biology and science teach us that males and females are quite different. Of course we are equal, but we are not identical. What we face in our culture is that uh, we're told and you're being taught in your college uh, courses that uh, male and female distinction is a social construction. It's a social construct. In other words, society is the one that taught us this and that a doctor is the one that imposed your sexual identity. And, and really it's not on a doctor. It's not on a mom or a dad. It's not on Uh, society. It's on you to determine whether or not you're a man or a woman. But what we see in the text is that culture didn't come up with the concept of male and female. It was your creator. And your creator created you biologically on purpose, not by accident. You were born biologically as a man or as a woman. And that was God's design for you. And that was God's gift to you. So if you're a woman today, that was God's gift to you. If you're a man today, that was God's gift to you. He has a purpose in that, and it was a very distinct role that he gives to us. So now let's jump to Genesis 2 and see what it says. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field And every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And so God creates Eve. He creates a woman. He says it is not good for Adam to be alone. It's not good for a man to walk alone, to work alone. So he needs help, he needs companionship. So one of the purposes of marriage we see already is, is for friendship, It's for relationship, It's to have a best friend. And if your marriage isn't what, it, what you would hope it was gonna be, if you're struggling in your marriage, one of the, one of the key things that I think we can work on as a couple is essentially have fun together. You know, enjoy each other's company. Do the things you used to do when you were dating. You know, have fun. Go do things that he likes to do. Go do things that she likes to do. Watch football tonight and eat unhealthy food for the glory of God, right? (laughs) As a family, whoever you're gonna root for, why do we do that? Well, we do that to develop our relationship together. And some of us lose sight of that. We get busy working, we get busy being a mom or a dad, we get busy paying the bills, we get stressed out. And then we forget that, oh yeah, in a relationship, you have to cultivate it. You've got to do things that are fun. Valentine's Day is coming up this week, guys. So just your friendly reminder uh, to do something that she's going to enjoy and you're going to be able to show her some love. The helper needed to be like the man but distinct from him so god creates eve to be his wife this is the first wedding this is god giving us this institution we call marriage it is god who says that it's not good for man to be alone it is good is not good for man to live in solitude it is god who creates this foundational covenant relationship that we call marriage, which is between one man and one woman uh, for the duration of their life till death do us part. He says, I will make a helper fit for him. What does it mean to fit? Don't miss the importance of this statement. God will make a perfectly suited relationship for a man. And it's a woman. It doesn't mean a woman is simply a helper to a man and she fits whatever he needs. That's not what it means. When God says he created a fit, he's saying that he designed men and women to fit in such a way that they would be able to help each other. So she is created in such a way that she will help him. And he is created in such a way that he will help her and they fit together. They fit together spiritually, emotionally, and even physically. Now, the way that we like to fit together as men and women, again, is different. Men typically like to fit together physically first and then relationally if we need a friend and then maybe spiritually if we think that's important. Women kind of flip-flop it. Women wanna connect relationally first, then they wanna connect spiritually and then physically. And so we can already see the dynamics there of, of how we're different. But then I believe it's God who wants us to first fit spiritually, And when we fit spiritually, we are both submitted to Christ. We love the Lord. We want to worship God as we are submitted to him vertically. Then we can begin to have a healthy relationship second. And then in the confines of marriage, we can fit physically. The text says that I will make a helper suitable for him. So the word helper, uh, people get hung up on that phrase and and they think that it's anti-women or they think that women are only here to help men. And so they, they push back on that. But again, we have to understand the Bible for what it, what it actually says, not what, you know, you infer the meaning to be. And so the Hebrew word in verse 18 for helper uh, usually almost always refers to describe God. God is our helper. For instance, in Psalm 54, verse four, it says, behold, God is my helper. Now, if God is my helper, does that mean he exists only to do whatever I want him to do, and so he's subservient to me? Of course not. It's not what the word help actually means. God does not exist just to do whatever you want to do. And so to help someone doesn't imply that the helper is weaker than the helped. Not at all. The Word is also used to describe uh, military help. So like reinforcements, you're in a battle, you need reinforcements, you need help to come in to win the battle. So for the woman to be the helper means that she will make up what is lacking in the man with her own strengths. And so means that Adam's strength is inadequate by itself and Eve's strength is inadequate by itself, but together they will strengthen each other. So we help each other, that's how God designed it. And God programmed the man's, the woman's biology, physiology to be similar, but different. God designed their form, God designed our frame. So to kind of sum this up, God designed gender and He defines what it means to be a man or a woman. It's very simple. Uh, The title of this message is God Designs and He Defines. So whatever God designs, whatever He creates, He is also, because he's the creator, he gets to create the definition for what that means. Marriage is not a social construct. Uh, Society didn't come up with marriage. God came up with marriage. God developed marriage for those who are followers of Christ, for those who are committed to God, those who have faith in God, right? So anybody else that gets married outside of people who love Jesus and love the Lord, it's really... it's it's really them accepting a Christian belief in their own life. It doesn't even make sense for them to do it because God is the designer and he's the one that defines what it is. And so as he creates and designs gender, he's also in that creation defining what a man is supposed to do, what his role is and what a woman, what her role is as well. God programmed this. And so there's nothing fluid about gender in God's design. There's no reassigning of your gender in God's design. Person can change their body physically. You can take hormones. Those things will change how you look and appear, but it will not change who God created you to be. And anytime, whether it's gender or anything else that you are trying to live your life outside of God's design for your life, it's going to create pain and suffering in your life. Every cell in your body is stamped with either an XX chromosome or an XY chromosome. That means you can't understand yourself if you try to ignore the way that God designed you and defined you. I have a lot of people that will teach us and say that, well, my sex drive really determines my identity. You know, if you got a man and his sex drive is to be with other men, Well, my identity must be, I must be a homosexual because my sex drive is this and goes in this direction. So therefore I must define myself as a homosexual, but your sex drive cannot and should not determine your identity. Sex drive, uh, just because you have a sex drive for something doesn't mean it's good or right. Think of it like this. If you're a heterosexual man, you're a man that likes women. Right? Your preference would probably be, if you didn't know anything about the Bible, that God would let you uh, sleep with multiple women. That would be your sex drive, to, do, to, to have sex with multiple women. But that sex drive does not make it good or right because we know that God created and designed marriage to be between one man and one woman in marriage. So again, your sex drive cannot, should not, lead to your identity in any shape or form. Our sexual drive is really just our lust, right? And so we have to understand that, that lust and, 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 what God, and, and how God has designed us to experience sex are, are two different things. And we have to be aware of that. The question then for uh, us is, is not, what does my sex drive want me to have? The question is, did God create sexuality? And if so, what is the purpose? And I believe God created sexuality. He created man and woman. He created sex to be in the confines of marriage. And so what is the purpose? And in Genesis two, as he is creating Adam and Eve and joining them in marriage, we begin to see this purpose. They're both created in the image of God, equal in dignity, equal in essence, but they're designed differently because we each have a different role to play in the relationship and in the family. Look at verse 22, it says, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he had made into a woman and he brought her to the man. What we see here is God is the first father walking his bride down the aisle to bless her and Adam in this first marriage. So when a father walks his daughter down the aisle in a wedding, he is symbolizing his heavenly father bringing Eve to her groom. It's a biblical symbol that I think we should keep in today's wedding ceremonies. In verse 24, he says, "'A man will leave his father and mother "'and hold fast to his wife. "'They shall become one flesh.'" So leaving and cleaving is essentially uh, an important step. When you get married, you are leaving the emotional and financial support of your parents and you are cleaving to your spouse. See, a lot of issues happening in marriage when the wife won't leave the emotional support of her mother or the, the, the son won't leave the emotional support of his mother. And that creates a lot of tension in the marriage. So there's leaving and there's cleaving, and there is a one flesh union, which yes means sexually, but it's way, way, way more than that. One flesh is a covenant relationship that God creates. He performs the wedding and he says, this is gonna be a permanent relationship till uh, death do us part. And so when a man and woman speak their vows, when they consummate those vows with sex, it is not a man or woman or pastor or parent who is the main actor of that ceremony. It is God. He is the director. He is the initiator in that one flesh union. That's why he says what God joins together, let no man separate. Now let's flip over to Ephesians chapter five to see how this plays out a little bit further. Paul says this in verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Several things happening here. In verse 32, it says that this is a profound mystery. Uh, marriage between a man and a woman. And the mystery is that it represents the gospel. Marriage is patterned after Christ and his covenant that he commits with his church. Christ thought of himself as the bridegroom coming for his bride, you and I, the church, the true people of God. And so when we trust in Jesus as our savior, he is making a covenant with us. He joins with us to be our savior, to be our king, to be our leader. Now, in the first century, when men wanted to marry a woman, they had to pay a dowry to her father. And if he could pay that dowry, then he was essentially showing that he could take care of her. That wasn't a biblical command, but it was a a cultural tradition. In the same way, the same idea here is that Jesus is the groom. You and I are the bride, the church, and he pays the dowry for our relationship, for this marriage, right? He is the one that pays for it with his own blood on the cross. And so he forms with this payment a new covenant and he creates this bond, this covenant. It is an unbreakable marriage between he and us, his church. And so marriage is really then the picture of this mystery. It displays God's glory in the gospel. Christ is never gonna leave his bride. He's never gonna leave you. He's never gonna forsake you. He's never gonna divorce you or walk away from you. So God designs husbands then to be the reflection of Christ's love for the church and the way that he would relate to his wife. And God designs wives to be a reflection of the church's love for Christ in the way that she relates to her husband. Some think, well, these verses really kind of are anti-women, right? All this submission talk all of this leadership talk. When the Bible says that Christ is the head of the church, it means that Christ leads by giving his life for the church, don't miss that. So he's doing that to make his church uh, holy, cleansing the church, blessing the church. He did this to make the church spotless, without wrinkle, without uh, uh, blamelessness, right? And so for Christ to be the head of the church, it really means that he gives everything he has for the good of the church. He takes responsibility to lay down his rights. He submits to uh, you and I, he submits to God what he wants and he lays down his life for the sake of the church. And so this is the mystery. This is, this is the, the symbol of then what a husband is to do for his wife. So to make it clear, a husband should give everything he has for the good of his wife. This is what Jesus did for his church as the head of the church. And so husbands, as the head of the family, we should give everything we have for the good of our wife. That is a high calling. That is not anti-women, that is pro-women on steroids. And then secondly, here for the wife, a wife then should respect her husband. We close the passage with that statement. What does respect do for a husband? It changes everything. If you respect your husband and you give him the honor and respect that God calls you to give to him, it will change everything. He say, well, he doesn't, he hasn't earned my respect. Well, I did not read in that text that wives are to respect the husband that has earned it. (laughs) It doesn't say that. It says that wives are called to respect their husband, their role. And the reason is because men are wired that way. When men receive respect from their wife, it makes them a better person. It changes everything for them. Just try respecting your husband. Just, Just try it for a week. I found that when men are respected It changes how they lead. It changes how they look at life. It changes how they go to work. It changes how they interact with the family. It changes everything because that's how God designed us. And so he says, what does it mean then for a wife to respect her husband? Verse 24, the first thing he says is by submitting to him, by submitting to him. That doesn't mean he dominates her or that she follows him. Um, into sinful behavior. It doesn't mean that all women are called to submit to men in general. No, it means that a wife is called to submit to her husband. Now we kind of flinch at that word and we flinch at this teaching because our culture has taught us that that is demeaning, right? Our mind immediately goes to, well, that means a man must be superior, but that is not what the Bible teaches. In verse 21, it says that we are to submit to one another. So husbands are called to submit to their wife. Wives are called to submit to their husbands. Submission doesn't mean inferior. In Genesis 1 and 2, God makes it clear that men and women are equal, right, in dignity and value and worth, but we are are called to different roles, and submission doesn't mean inferior there. Submission really is simple. Submission means to yield to another person in love. That's it. Does it mean superior? Does not mean dominate? It means that if you're gonna be in a healthy relationship, a healthy marriage, you're gonna learn that submitting means that you're gonna yield to the other person in love. And we're all, every healthy marriage, Every single one of us, we're gonna have to learn that we're gonna have to submit to one another in different ways at different times, in different seasons. When a husband really loves his wife, as Christ loves the church, he's gonna be living in complete submission to her needs, just as Christ did. So he is the example. So submission is working as a team. It's not about a man being the dictator or a woman being a doormat. All throughout scripture, we're we're told to submit in different ways. Young men are called to submit to older men in 1 Peter 5. Church members are called to submit to faithful pastors in Hebrews 13. All of us are called to submit to the governing authorities that we have in Romans 13. Does it mean that young men are inferior to older men? Of course not. Does that mean that church members are inferior to pastors? Of course not. Does it mean that we are inferior to our government authorities? Of course not. That is not what he is saying. In a healthy marriage, we are submitting to each other's needs, submitting to each other's wants and desires every single day. And as we do this, we demonstrate to the world what love really is. Love is not a box of chocolates and 12 dozen roses once a year. Love is when you can come home from work and instead of putting your needs first and go straight to the couch and TV or straight to the garage and your hobby, love is you come in knowing that you're gonna have to yield to what your wife needs. You know you're getting ready to walk into World War III when you walk through those doors. And so your your road trip from the office or wherever you work to your home is a mental preparation. It is a mental battle, it is a spiritual battle. I know you're exhausted, you have worked your tail off. And what you really wanna do is go lay on the couch and take a nap and watch football. And that is probably what heaven's gonna be like. (laughs) But that day is not today. If you have kids and they have needs, Your wife needs you to help with the kids. She needs you to help in the kitchen. She needs you to help her. And so being a husband that would submit mutually to the needs of his wife means that he would recognize that and he would submit to that. Now at the same time, yes, mutual submission, but verse 23 says that the husband is the head. So what does that mean? What does it mean that a husband is the head of the wife. We've gotta recognize that's a unique, special, distinct calling. And the meaning is that he is the spiritual leader of the family. What does it mean to be the spiritual leader of the family? It means that you are the initiator of spiritual conversations. You're the initiator of going to church. You're the initiator uh, to read the word of God. You are encouraging your kids to follow and trust the word of God. You are taking initiative. That's what leadership is. You take the initiative spiritually in your home, helping your wife grow spiritually, connect relationally. You are cultivating, right? A healthy home environment. Now you are a bad leader if you have cultivated an unhealthy environment where there's a lot of chaos and trouble and uneasiness. And people walk around, you know, like they're walking around on eggshells because they're afraid you're gonna blow up. No, you as the, the, the father, as the man, your role is to initiate, cultivate, and create a healthy, stable home environment that leads people to follow and love Jesus. You are not perfect. You're gonna blow up. You're gonna make mistakes. But the spiritual leader is then the person that asks for forgiveness that takes initiative to change, that takes initiative to grow as a man. Some of you might say, I have no idea what that looks like. My dad wasn't around. He wasn't a follower of Jesus. He didn't teach me that. That's what God's church is for. It's what small group is for. That's what discipleship is all about, helping you learn and grow and practically begin to do that in your family. A lot of people distort the roles in marriage uh, when it comes to this passage. And, you know, a husband might distort that role of a leader and become domineering and think that he's the dictator. He might become very insensitive and oppressive, and that denigrates his wife. A husband could go on the other uh, side, be equally as damaging and become a passive weenie. (laughs) He might avoid all leadership and all initiative. Right, Both extremes are a disservice to your wife. Women don't deserve a passive wimp and they don't deserve a domineering jerk. You are called to demonstrate the gospel in your home. You're called to reflect the love that Christ has for his church. That means you love her, you serve, you protect, you care for in such a way, you do your best to provide physically, emotionally, relationally, and yes, even spiritually. You recognize your inadequacies. You confess those, and you pursue growth in those areas. You do that, and I think she will appreciate it. You're not called to be the dominator, you're called to be the demonstrator of the gospel. Um, That means, obviously, when we walk into our home, we have to adjust from what we want to what she needs. Wives, in a similar way, instead of coming home from work and just doing what you wanna do, you've gotta submit to his needs. And I will guarantee you, if not number one or number two, that's gonna involve sex. And I don't care how old you are, that's most likely gonna be a need of his, that he's gonna need you uh, to fulfill that responsibility. It means that you're going to need to respect him, as we've mentioned. It means that you're gonna need to appreciate him, it means that you're gonna need to have fun with him. And this is why marriage is hard because we wanna do what we wanna do. We don't wanna meet the other person's needs, but it's also one of the purposes for marriage. How else will I learn what it means to be a giving and serving person and reflect the serving and, and love of God than, than, than my own wife who, who knows that I have inadequacies and I'm not perfect. And she's very willing to point those out. (laughs) And then I also have a responsibility to love her and, and to help her and to serve her. And so God creates this amazing relationship to make me a better person, to make me a more mature man, to help me connect to Jesus in a way that I never could if I didn't have her. And so if you let it, your marriage will be the greatest, the greatest tool that God uses to grow you as a person, spiritually, mentally, physically. You're called to submit to each other's needs. And the motivation for our submission is that Jesus submitted to his church. That's your motivation. You wanna be like Jesus as a follower of Jesus. You wanna be like him then you wanna submit like he did. He gave everything that he had to serve his church. Men, that is the gospel message that you are following and that you are showing to your children, your wife and modeling to them. That's why marriage always comes back to Jesus. Marriage always comes back to Christ because another purpose of marriage is the glory of God. And some of us have never even thought about that. We've never even considered that marriage exists for Christ more than it does for us. Because in our relationship, we are to glorify God. And as we glorify God through our love and our sacrifice and our submission, the world sees that, our kids see that, our neighbors see that, and they're impacted by the gospel. And God opens up their spiritual ears. Instead of focusing on our own needs, we've gotta begin to focus on the glory of God through our marriage. God created marriage. He's also the one who is the only hope for our marriage. And so if you have a problem with your marriage, it's not where you want it to be. You know you need to grow. You know you need some big changes. Step one is submit to Jesus. Submit to His authority. Seek Him. As you seek Him, then the relationships horizontally can change. But my vertical relationship with God has to be the first priority. And if I'm focused on my growth with Him, then my relationship horizontally with other people, especially my wife, can then begin to get healthy. Maybe your marriage isn't where you want it to be today. My encouragement is to trust Jesus, is to give your life to Him. You might be a Christian. So say, I've done that, but I still need a miracle. We've got some issues. We've got some things going on. Let me remind you that God will not fail you. The trial and the storms that we face in our life, again, are for His glory, to bring you closer to Him. And so I wanna encourage you to hold on I want to encourage you to trust him, to continue to believe in him, continue to seek him, pray, ask for his miracles to happen in your marriage. And I truly believe that he will provide. Seek him. Yes, practically you might need counseling. Yes, you need a small group. You need people praying for you, but do not lose your faith in him. God can and will change your situation. You must hope, you must believe, and you must continue to trust that He's given you a responsibility and a role to play. I believe you're gonna do it. Over the next few weeks, we're gonna talk practically about how this can flesh out. Next week, we're gonna talk about what a woman really needs from a man. I'm gonna have some help teaching next week, so um, it's not just gonna be me. So I hope that you'll come back. Then we're gonna talk about what a man really needs from a woman. Then we're gonna talk about how to really build a family on the foundation of the gospel, what that really uh, means practically for us. So I hope you'll come back and invite somebody because I know God's gonna change some families and some marriages in this series. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. And Lord, we know that what you've called us to is a high calling and it's not easy, but we need you and we trust that you're gonna be with us. We trust that you're gonna give us the strength. We trust God that you're gonna give us the the vision and power to do what you've called us to do. Lord, I wanna pray a prayer of blessing over every family, couple in the room, every single person in the room. God, I pray that you would help them to know your calling upon their life. God, I pray for that marriage that is struggling today. Give them grace, give them hope, give them peace today. For that single person person looking maybe for a spouse, Lord, would you provide for them in your timing And Lord, right now, would they focus on growing spiritually? Would you give them the grace and and just the mercy to be able to experience that growth? Lord, we pray that your presence would be felt and move us into a deeper relationship with you. We believe that you are not failing us. Help us to hold on to that promise. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.